Hello. Hello. There it is. Hi, guys. How's everybody? I like wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Go in heaven. Keep everything in context. Alrighty. First Corinthians. Just out of curiosity, the book flows more than I thought. Like chapters one, two, three, and four were kind of combined. Then you get to five, but then five goes into six, then six goes into seven, and it's got a, themes that over-relate. So we're in seven. Was anybody not here for chapter six? When I, because just out of curiosity, if it'll tie, if they haven't heard it, okay. Um, chapter six. I used to. Again, in chapter five, it kind of mentions. Um, fornication, sexual immorality, and that theme carries on into uh, 6, which also talks about taking each other to court, but then it also kind of ties into sexual immorality. And now in chapter 7, um, it's talking about that same thing, but in marriage. So this will be a lot about marriage, but how it relates spiritually, whether marriage or singleness. And... Uh, Hopefully it'll flow and, and make sense. Well, let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would be ministering to our heart. You would send the Holy Spirit. You said he would lead and guide us into all truth. Lord, we need truth. We need something solid to stand on and remain on. We need you to guide us. And all of these things that you put um, teaches us about you. You are the living word. So we just pray that you would... Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to the church and that we would grow in our understanding and knowledge of who you are and how to relate to one with another. In Jesus' name, amen. So to tie things, and as always, the, any pastor will tell you, the clock, the unfriendly clock, ran out of time last time. So uh, touch on a couple things that will hopefully tie it back in. Um, I know we ended up, well, some of you missed all of it, but we ended up talking about um, not to sue one another. And he basically, there's a verse that kind of comes up again, that same topic, but or the same ministry uh, in a different topic about uh, in verse 7. It's already an utter failure, failure that you go to law. Why are you pursuing being righted? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? And we'll be touching on that a little bit in a second. Um, but some of the things, there's this principle, and it's the principle of God. And if he asks us to do something, um, there's a reason for it. And I, I, if I don't say it every time I'm up here, I want to. God is really smart. Does everybody know God is really smart? Do we need to be reminded of that? I need to be reminded of that. When I'm trying to figure out what to do and I don't ask him, I forget. He's really smart. <laughs> and this is his word and instruction book to us, a manual for life. And sometimes it says things, and as we've gone through before, and Pastor Rob has kind of implicated that sometimes we don't understand just when he was teaching about when he was talking to his disciples about dying, 
it, it like it went over their head. They're like, they, they didn't even get it. Sometimes when we're not trying to, if it doesn't fit what we believe to be true, sometimes it doesn't make any sense to us. So all we can do is let it go. And there's a lot of things and principles that sometimes like let yourself be cheated. Like, yeah, I don't know what that means. So I'll just skip it. And now that's not part of my life and who I am when it is part of God's character and when other things come into be that it doesn't make sense because that's not a principle that I put in my life. Um, but there's a couple verses, and I mentioned it, but I didn't talk about them. In chapter 6, verse 2 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He says, Do you not know? And then it goes on in verse 3, Do you not know that we, we shall judge the angels? And I didn't really touch on that, um, and I won't again because... What does that mean? We're going to judge angels. Okay, I'll just go on. He said it, it must be true. <laughs> a lot of crazy stuff about that. I can't find anywhere in the Old Testament or even Paul teaching about this judgment or what it means. I think it probably, we know that even just as we're being ministered to and as we're being given crowns in heaven, that in and of itself is a judgment against other people and other things. So, some people would go to say, well, it can't mean in heaven I'm going to sue my guardian angel because, man, he didn't do a very good job because of all the trouble I got into. He could have stopped me from doing this, and that doesn't make sense, especially when this whole thing is about not suing people. So, <laughs> so probably it's the demonic, but that's as far as I'm going to go. Um, and it also says in verse 9, so there's a bunch of do you not know, do you not know, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but God questions me that sometimes too. What are you doing? Don't you know this? I'm like, well, evidently not. <laughs> Can you explain it to me again? Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, excuse me, Mark, what are you doing? You're a Christian. You're not supposed to be doing that. I don't know if God says that to you, but he says it to me. Verse 15 do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? And again, he just went on from chapter 5, talking about sexual immorality, went on to suing each other, and then all of a sudden he's back into the sexual immorality part. And we talked a little bit about that last time. Christ is in me. If I go somewhere, I'm taking him with me. What I partake in, I'm causing him to partake of it. And there's this whole thing about being holy, for he is holy. And we know that we can resist the Holy Spirit before we're saved, and he won't then come into you, right? The book of Acts, Peter, how long shall you resist the Holy Spirit? Once you're born again, he then comes in you. Once he's in you, we know that we can grieve him, sadden him. So we have this walk and relationship with the Holy Spirit. And if we're under the faucet, if the Holy Spirit is being poured out once Pentecost happens personally and individually at any moment, uh, then we can quench him. We can stop that outflowing of the Holy Spirit. So Paul encourages us, do not quench, do not grieve. There's this relationship with the Spirit. And I think that's the point that's important to understand to get to understanding this next principle that we're going to come across. And then it goes on in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 
for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So he goes on here to say that, actually, I, I skipped it. It says in 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So we, now we understand in Genesis when he says it, and the two shall become one. And it's repeated in the New Testament that he's actually referring to this husband and wife relationship that something happens internally when they come together. There's a, a physical soul combination. And I mentioned last time, it's kind of like when you have two pieces of paper and, and they get glued together, they become intimate. You can't, when you, if you take it apart, something's torn. Something happens inside of you when there's this intimacy that happens, sexual intimacy. And it's, and it's good in, in place, in a proper place, and it's harmful out of place. So we're going to get into that whole topic because that's what Seven talks about. And uh, I didn't write this. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. Um, and sometimes this goes right over our heads. We can read through Corinthians and all of a sudden it just kind of like, because it doesn't make sense to us, it just kind of passes. But there's a spiritual truth that's here. And he's talking both to married and unmarried in this chapter. And this principle right now if you don't understand this, then everything is going to be, then what does this even desire or topic even have to do with anything? It's kind of like, well, we're here. I have a relationship with God, you know, but my job is my job, but my sex life is my sex life, but my hobbies are my hobbies. So therefore I need to have God the most important thing in my life, but all those other things. And that's a life-changing moment when you get to a place in your Christian walk where you realize what the word of God actually says. And it's not that God has to be first, and then my family is second, and then the country is third. It's that God is first in my family. It's that God is first in my country. It's that God is first in my job. God is first in my life. Otherwise, those other things become idols, and now you're worshiping multiple gods. So is he, do we give him liberty to be in control of our desires, all desires? Some of us are struggling with our eating desires. Sometimes because of health issues, sometimes just because we want it. Eating's not bad. We read that also. It says that, you know, the body is not for sex. It tells us in chapter 6. That's not the intent of the body. Yet the food is for stomach, and stomach is for the food. God's okay with us eating. It's not a thing. What you eat doesn't even matter. We'll get into that farther in Corinthians. But what you do with your body does matter. And he, I mean, this is bold, right? Paul flat out tells him in verse 20, you were bought. Your body's not yours. And that, as Americans, we don't like it all. Sometimes we can say, you know, who, who, you know, that's what happened at the, at the, um, when, he, the, when he walked in, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then they, those same people then went to the cross and said, we will not have this man rule over us. I don't want him. I'm not going to let him tell me what, who are you to tell me what to do with my body? And isn't that an echo and a cry that we hear frequently in our streets right now and on TV? It's my body. You don't tell me what to do with my body. Well, if you're a Christian, you've been bought. And, and the, the bad part about that, if it's a bad part, which it's not, is that now you shouldn't get a say, although we know that we get to, it's a loving relationship. He doesn't make us do anything. Um, however, if you know who your master is, you'll be thankful. If you know how smart God is, you'll be thankful. If you know his heart, and you know that eternity is in the midst, 
you come to a point where you long, Lord, just take everything. Be in, make, think for me. Act for me. I just want you to take over. And I was there, younger, in my walk, thinking, I, I'm sick of my sin. I know you're sick of my sin. Just make me not sin anymore. We'd all be happy. You guys would be happier, that's for sure. Everyone's sick of my sin. And, and it took a while, in the stillness and the small voice, and he finally says, Mark, what you're asking me to do is take away your ability to love me. He goes, just choose me. Yeah, but it's hard. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I never said it was going to be easy. It's hard. Just choose me. Just do what I say. If you love me, keep my commandments. You'll be blessed. You'll, you'll find out I actually am right. God actually is right. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So we see this principle, like I said in verse 16, that when two people come together, they become one. So there's a sexual intimacy. It's re- representing a spiritual truth. Don't miss the spiritual truth. We become one with another in body. It's representing Christ coming one with us in spirit. Do you know what it means to walk in the spirit? Do you know what it means to have the love of God pouring in your heart? Do you know what it means to have him talk to you in the still small voice? What does it mean to have this relationship with God in spirit? Jesus said, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. If you're not born again, you've never done that. Some people say, well, I haven't sinned that much. Well, have you ever walked? You don't have the ability to walk and have a spiritual relationship with the spiritual God if you haven't been born again. You've never done the right thing. It's not about, God wasn't up there thinking, I just wish I had more goodness. I'll create people, they can be good, then I'll be happy. He doesn't need anything from us. He created us to have fellowship with him. And it's an intimate fellowship. And he gave us this physical intimacy ability and desire in order for us to learn the truth. And when this happens, it should teach us something. A lot of people stop at 20 because it's a different chapter break, and then the next time they teach on 7. In the letter, it goes one right into the other. So 7, 1, 2, 6, 5 comes right after 620. So we can read it. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So in case anybody was wondering, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's kind of like Jeopardy here, right? So we're changing a other things, people came to Paul. We know that he was there. We know he wrote a letter prior to this because um, he references in what he had said before. So this is not the first letter he wrote to Corinthians. It's just the first one that we have recorded for us as canon, as scripture. We know that people came to him and told him of the things that were going on in Corinth. And evidently, they also wrote a letter. So now all of a sudden, we have answers, but we don't know what the questions were. And if you're anything like me, you can read this answer and say, what question would this be the answer to? <laughs> kind of intriguing. What question would be answered by it is good for a man not to touch a woman? So we know just from looking into research and history 
and the idolatry and the things that were going on in Corinth, there was a group of people there that said, the spirit is good, the flesh is bad. Anything you do in the flesh doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is the spirit and that's the only thing that's going to remain. So therefore you can do whatever you want in the flesh. It doesn't matter. Other people were saying, no, the, the flesh is bad. You need to denounce it all the time. They would literally beat themselves, crawl on their knees. They would punish their flesh and say, no, I'm just going to live and, and try to push through in the spirit. And then they would sit there and argue because they were prideful and they all thought they were right and everyone else was wrong. And they'd get into these big, huge debates and yell at each other and think they were spiritual. And then they would cause divisions and we're the group of people that do this, we're the group of people that do that. And he's, he says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And some people, we believe that even were married and said, you know, if, if the flesh is bad and if you can commit fornication and if my heart is not right, uh, should we even sleep with our wives? Should we just stop doing this altogether? So there's all these, we don't know what the question was. He said, to start out with, it's good. Two, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So, yep, I got me my own wife, and uh, my wife has her own husband. I only, he only get one, and I know somebody had said, um, could you imagine if when you graduated high school, you had a car, and you were not going to get another one? How would you treat that car? You'd change the oil all the time. You'd be washing it all the time. You'd be taking good care of it. We had, she had, my wife had come from a, a divorced family, parents, and we had... I'd seen enough, and we both, not even saved when we got married, and we were like, you know what, we're not getting divorced. I don't care what happens. That was not going to be an option, and we just started out that way. You know, never say never, God, <laughs> but by grace, there go I, but I didn't know anything about grace at the time. I was just saying, I'm committed. We're doing this. We're doing it. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality. So is the only reason to get married so you don't commit sexual immorality? Is it just so you can have sex? What's the point of marriage? So to go on from here, this is not designed, I don't believe, um, if you want to know what a proper marriage is supposed to be. I think Colossians, Ephesians, there's a whole bunch of Genesis. There's a whole bunch of spots you can go to that are specifically on marriage. This is specifically talking about not committing fornication and a part of being married, but if you don't understand why you're married, this won't make sense. I guess Paul's assuming, do you not know? Why do people get married? What makes a good marriage? And I'd ask you to ponder that. What makes a good marriage? If you look at somebody and you say, wow, they got a good marriage, or if you were to look at somebody and say, wow, man, their marriage isn't very good, what do you know about their marriage? Because they yell at each other? Does yelling at each other make a bad marriage? Well, it certainly doesn't make a good one. <laughs> What, what's the, in order to answer that question, what's the point of getting married? Are they Christ-like? Do they represent Christ in the church? In order to know what a good marriage is, you need to know why God created marriage. It's the only reason that a marriage would be good or bad. There's a purpose for a marriage. If, if, well, they, they seem happy together. Did God, does, does God create you to be happy? He created you to be holy. If you walk holy and are filled with him, you will, you'll have joy. God doesn't want you unhappy, but that's not the purpose. It's not about you. Getting married is not about you. Getting married is not about me. We make it that. Well, I'm not happy anymore. 
I don't know, I've mentioned this multiple times because it's just so easy to understand to me, but I'm a slow construction worker. But, but I, I talk to guys all the time. They're like, yeah, I just, you know, we're, we're getting divorced and I know you probably think that's not good, but, you know, I just don't love her anymore. Okay, biblically, I, I totally understand that whole side of everything, but in reality, what does it mean you don't love them anymore? Love isn't a feeling, biblically, right? It's a verb. It's what you do. You don't love people because they're lovable. You have agape love that comes from God, and you love people. He loves people through you. What would they do to make him stop loving them? He said, while we were still yet sinners, he died for you. He said, love your enemies. We don't have a reason to stop loving anybody. It's a command. And if we're letting him do it through us, he's going to do it. So if you're married and you're like, well, I don't love them anymore. Okay, so you're telling me that you aren't allowing God to do what he wants in your life for your spouse anymore. That's really what you're saying. I just, and we'll talk about that. There's reasons why we get there and there's examples. We should, we should get along. You, I think it, an arranged marriage should work. It, it worked for years. If you just sit there and just serve God, even if you didn't like them or don't even know them, I'm going to love God. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I am going to be obedient to him. I don't want to interrupt my relationship with God, and I'm going to do everything that I'm supposed to do for him. That will be a blessing to somebody else. And if they do that, that will be a blessing to me. And isn't that what heaven's about? Love God, love others. And most of us, especially before we were saved, were like, what about me? I got to get mine. Well, heaven is when no one's worried about themselves, but everybody else there is serving you. That, I mean, can you even imagine that? Everybody there is looking out after your best interest. You don't have to worry about yourself. Isn't that what, isn't that what kids do to you? You have a child, it's not like, okay, well, what are they going to do for me? I mean, that's not until they get older and can start cutting the grass or something. But, but when they're born, you're not expecting anything out of them. You just have this burden that God gave you because he's a dad and he wants you to experience, or a mom, and he wants you to experience something that he, of his relationship with you and his heart. So this is just the one aspect of marriage, so it's not in total context, but this is where we're at, so this is where we're reading it. 7-2, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and that's singular, let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And we already read, and we shouldn't take it out of context, that your body's not yours. The last chapter says, your body's God's, and this is what I want to do with it. Give it to your spouse. It's a picture of what we're supposed to do. Now the question comes down to is, do we love God, and are we going to be obedient to him? And if so, we're going to serve the person that we're married to. Your life should be about them, which we might not get to it today. Later on in chapter 7, 
It says that can be a distraction in serving the Lord. So if you have a gift of celibacy, then you can be wholeheartedly just serving me and understand this picture. So it is a distraction, but it is a requirement. We also are going to see celibacy as a gift, but so is marriage. One's not better than the other. It just depends what you have. And if you're married and you think you have the gift of celibacy and your spouse doesn't, then you're wrong because <laughs> it's not your body. The wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband, and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife. And it says in verse 3, let the husband render, and that word render actually means to pay a debt or to give or to render or to reward or to sell or to yield. You're to be given to your spouse what's owed to her, and it actually is the same word in chapter 6 that I read earlier today. Verse 8, know yourselves, do wrong, and cheat. That's the word cheat. So you're basically, if you are not allowing your body to be your spouse's, you're stealing from them, you're cheating them. Says God, not Mark. But on the other hand, in chapter 6, it also says, if you're being wronged, then let them wrong you. Just let them wrong you. So on, on my end, I'm to not deprive my body, but on the other hand, I'm not to demand my wife to. I'm to love God and love others. Why not just be cheated? Okay, well, I don't want to be the cheater, but I also... It's, I can, should be allowed myself to be cheated. And if you both have that same attitude, everything will work out fine. Whatever happens will work out because if you just love God, which is how important is it then to make sure that you are walking with God and that you find someone that is also willing to walk with God. Going in the same direction, the same way, like-minded we're, we're to be on the same mission, right? I remember right when I taught through, I think it's Colossians, the wife is to submit. What, what does it mean? It's to be under the mission, submission. You're going in the same direction, under the same head, for the same cause. And this is a picture, and sometimes we're like, well, I don't want to. Yeah, well, because things are out of order. And part of the reason is if you do that, that helps. Being intimate actually there's a healing process there. It causes you two to become one. Well, I'm not one with them. Well, this is part of the remedy or maybe part of the reason why you won't fall away. Not everyone's able to. And if you're single, you're obviously not supposed to. And all of that is covered. We'll just keep reading. It'll get into there. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again and come together again, it's a command, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So I don't know what you could be tempted to, but if you are tempted because of a lack of self-control and you don't come together, either you're tempted to do the wrong thing, to be with the wrong person, or more likely to become bitter at your spouse and be angry. Bitterness, and I most of the time that I've talked to people, if you're in a marriage that's having issues, it usually begins with either money or sexual intimacy. And somebody's disappointed, 
they're doing something. Next thing you know, they get upset. Next thing you know, they get bitter. Next thing you know, they get drawn apart, and they don't have this oneness that the two shall become one happening. And uh, bitterness is powerful. It's hard. It's hard. It's not natural. You are not going to be able to get over it yourself. It's not hard for God. God loved us while we were still sinning against him. He didn't get bitter and turn his back on us. The spirit of God is in you, and that's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's a powerful spirit. If you let him have your life, it will work. You just have to let him. Just read it. I am not my own. This isn't my body. I've been bought. Jesus owns me, and I need help. He's the one that said that, and he wants to help. He's the one that said, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't, have, we don't have to talk him into it. It was his idea. He wants to fill you and use you. So, again, that word, do not deprive one another. So that word deprive is the same one used as cheat. And uh, I was just meditating on this, as I often do, as much as I can throughout. After this, I'll be to the next part, just reading it, reading it, thinking about it. And... Uh, I had this vision. Again, I'm a simple guy. I was at the gym, and I do electrical work. Are there any electrical engineers here? Has anybody ever seen something blow up? That's a, I guess you don't have to be an engineer. You just got to see something blow up. So, the power of God. Dunamis. Right? Who invented electricity? Not, not Thomas Jefferson, he, he found it, God, electricity, lightning, it was his idea, he is power. We, we just kind of work with what he did. Um, so how to tie this together? So you have a, a light bulb, everyone pretty familiar with a light bulb, right? Um, you, have a, a, you have a breaker that sends the power, allows the power to get to it, a switch to turn it on and off, a black and a white wire, one's a hot and a neutral, so now you've got the potential for power. If nothing's hooked up to it, what happens? Nothing. It just sits there. What happens when you touch them together? Sparks. Some t so what's the point of having electric if all it does is spark when you do it? Sometimes our relationships are like that. You sit there and you, uh, every time I'm around, there's sparks. Sometimes you're newlyweds and it's like, oh, fireworks, you know, good sparks. You know, you're, you don't haven't figured out what it actually means to live with them yet and you're not mad about the toothpaste or anything. It's just all sparks and fun. And then when, once you have some people, you know, it's like marriage. Every time we're around each other, all we do is just because there's a, a potential for power. The two shall become one. There's the source that's there. So what happens when you put a resistor in between it, a light bulb? Well, now all of a sudden you have power to accomplish a desire. You have light. It works. It, it goes through. You, and without either one, it won't work. And if there's a short circuit, what happens? The breaker trips. Now all of a sudden the power is gone. You grieve the Holy Spirit and it's not there. What, what is the hot and the neutral a husband and a wife supposed to do? Marriage is supposed to represent something. You have a ministry together and it's a beautiful thing and it works and the power isn't from you. You're just a conductor. And if you're not hooked up, so what happens with my ministry is trying to get better at golf and my wife's ministry is trying to go shopping. And now all of a sudden they're not connected. The load's not there. What if my 
my idea of sexual intimacy is this and hers is that and it doesn't line up and there's sparks and we're not connecting. You need to be on the same page. You need to be on the same mission. You need to, that's what the power of God is for. And if you're not sure what the power is or what the mission is, you need to ask God. He's the head. He's the one that tells you why you're here, what you were created for, and what the purpose is. Sometimes all we do is get sparks. Do not deprive one another except for with consent. That's an odd notion, maybe not for you. What does consent mean? It means you're talking about it. This is something that needs to be discussed. Are you on the same page? And I say this is not just for the married. This is also for the unmarried. Because if you're not married, then you need to be on the same page. Because some people might think that this applies to unmarried people. So if you're not married, then you need to be on this. If you're dating, you need to be on the same page. This is not okay. You need to understand what your body is for, who owns your body, and what the purpose of it is. We talk about stealing, right? Which I've heard this pastor say this before, too. If you're being intimate with somebody that you're not married to, you don't know that you're going to marry them. So you're stealing somebody from their future spouse in God's eyes. You're also sleeping with God's daughter, and he knows it. Do not deprive one another, except for with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer, which is a good thing to do. We know that it's also commanded in the Bible. It's kind of even hard to say. It's embarrassing sometimes. You're sitting here, especially when your kids are here. God says it. God has to tell us, don't sleep with animals. Like, really, you had to tell us that? (laughs) Women have a point in the month where they're not supposed to be sleeping with somebody when it's their time. Well, that would be a good time to pray. I don't know if at least the husband should be praying at that time. (laughs) Sometimes women can get moody when they're uh, not able to. uh, Time of prayer and fasting. But again, Satan comes, so it's not even just oh, I can't believe he can't control himself. It's a, it's a spiritual attack. So, woman, if you think that your husband's just a, a pig, God made him that way, and you're supposed to yield, and Satan's there, and he can get frustrated. And then sometimes it comes down to the whole consenting thing. Well, it didn't, you know, nothing is happening, and, and then all of a sudden he's upset, or you would think that he would be, so now, you're, now it just gets emotional nothingness, just... It might not even be a thing. Just We need to get over ourselves. But Paul says um, in 6, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. And again, we know that everything... He doesn't know that he's writing the Bible here. He's just writing a letter to a church. But Peter called it doctrine. And we know that when um, the Holy Spirit moves upon holy men and he wrote it, this is God's word. Uh, again, I had mentioned this is the Apostles' Doctrine. So it, it, some, certain things might not be an, um, a direct revelation from God. It might not be an interpretation of an Old Testament doctrine. And also some things, like should somebody be 
celibate unto the Lord because that's their gift. Well, he can't say you should be celibate because he's writing to multiple people. So now he's saying, this is the truth, this is the truth, this is the truth. You've got to find out where you're at. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. But, and we know that we believe strongly that Paul had been married and he's not at this time. And he never got remarried, so he also wrote this and he lived by it. And he was not dating or having sex and he had been given this gift of celibacy and now his whole heart is devoted just to the, the work of the ministry. And again, it was a different era, not that it matters, but Paul didn't have a, a plane to jump on to run to Crete. He had to walk and ride a horse or take a ship. And how long was he gone? So it would be pretty inconvenient. I still, you know, watching movies, I'm a guy in war and old time and people would go to war, they'd be gone a while. Just reading through the Bible, um, the two and a half tribes that didn't want to go over, well, they had to, into the promised land, Joshua led them. Um, They said, yeah, we'll go to battle. When all the wars are done, then we'll come back to our families on the other side. How many years was that? I'm going to war, I'll see you in a couple years. I mean, that's what happens around here when people go to war. But to do ministry, Paul had to leave. He was, how long for a period of time was he gone? If you didn't have that gift, that would be pretty inconvenient um, to not be around your wife. So I, I, I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gifts. That's not something that's natural. That's something God gives you. One in this manner and another in that. Not everybody has every gift. It's the same word used gift here as we're going to come to 1 Corinthians 12. It's something that God gives you supernaturally. But I say to the unmarried... And to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. If you're not married or you're a widow, then you should not be having sex, Paul says. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That just means if you don't have the gift, it's okay to get married. And we're going to read, not tonight, uh, chapter 7, verse 39, uh, he says, only in the Lord. So this is just about the sexual part of the marriage. It's not about marriage itself. There's a whole other portions of Scripture that says if you're going to get married, who you're supposed to get married to. The Jews in the Old Testament weren't allowed to marry non-Jews. And if they were to, they were to be into the temple and become, you need to be going the same way for a purpose. The whole point here is that marriage is two people becoming one with God the head. And if you're not painting the picture, you're not fulfilling what marriage is for. Marriage isn't just so that you can not burn. Marriage is not all about sex. Shouldn't be. But it is part of it. So rendering, giving what's due, do not deprive with all of this in mind. I personally am started for Samuel, and I just... Things hit me. I heard Pastor Bill Galton on the radio this week. Um, if you turn to First Samuel, chapter twenty-two. 
So I thought of uh, some Old Testament examples. One is a bad example, and one I would say is a good example. And just before I get into this, uh, I'm mindful of a very good friend of mine. He's uh, not home with Jesus. Um, dated the same girl since seventh grade, got married, stayed together, um, worked with him. She got saved. Uh, it was Pentecostal. I'm, he was telling me that he went to her baptism. Somebody spoke in tongues in his face. I believe it was out of order. He thought it was a word of knowledge. He had no idea what she, this person said, but he said God spoke to him, not a believer. And what God told him is, I'm doing something. You better not mess this up. He had a fear of God. So whatever was happening, it got his attention. Uh, he still messed it up. But they uh, lived together for, they were married for a long time. I get saved years later. She had been preaching to him his whole life through marriage. Uh, no fruit. Very congenial and polite. Uh, great guy. Everyone at work loved him. I loved him. And uh, I get saved. And I came to his house one day and sat at the table for, I think, three and a half hours. And he gives his heart to the Lord. And his wife was there listening to the whole thing. I probably did not say one thing she hadn't told him. And now all of a sudden I show up and he gets saved. What we didn't know is that she had been, she got a job, she was working, she hadn't worked for a while, and uh, the women there were chatting and telling her how bad her husband was, and one of the guys that worked there gave her an ear. Next thing you know, they're in a relationship. So here she has saved her whole life, and just before her husband gets saved, she's cheating on him. And now all of a sudden he gets saved from bad counsel at work. And she had every reason in the natural to be bitter, and now all of a sudden she's in a dilemma. <laughs> and uh, it was amazing what God did in his life. He just had a love for her that was supernatural. And she ended up leaving him for this guy, and he was abusive, came back to him, left him again for the same guy. He let her back in again. I mean, I'm just thinking of Gomer. And uh, he was, they eventually finally just got divorced. He ended up dying of cancer, and she recommitted her life to God and is now married again, and God, God is good. But... At a time, and again, Satan comes in and tempts. He's a destroyer. He tries to ruin the picture. And I just, there's counsel, and there's things that happen that are bad. And I just thought of 1 Samuel 22. Not read the chapter. David, therefore, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented, gathered to him, and we can see David as a picture of Christ, both in this chapter and the next one I'm going to read. 
And there were about 400 men with him, verse 3. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered... Now Saul was saying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, here now, you Benjamites, and of course the Benjamites were tough and they were his relatives, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me, how many times has he said me, that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg, this person we need to avoid, the Edomite who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him. Can you believe it? He prayed. Gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitub, he answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? Why did you pray with one of my honored soldiers who is dear in my house? Why did you benefit him and why did you care for him? We see Saul going insane right now. Why? Because of hatred. He's bitter. This is what bitterness looks like in a relationship. He is sitting there, and all of a sudden he's mad at God because of David. His relationship with David is broken down. What did God do to Saul? Nothing. God set Saul up. I mean, we heard the prophet commend him. But his hatred for one man, your hatred for your spouse, can actually cause you to, to break with God, which is what we're going to see here, which is why I'm reading this. 14, so Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Obviously, Ahimelech had no idea what was going on. 15, did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any of his house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, you shall surely die. Just like Satan, he's insane. He's bitter and he's mad. You, what are you doing? Your hatred for a person can break your relationship with God. 17, then the king said to the guards who stood about him, 
turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and because they knew when he had fled and did not tell it to me, but the servants of the kings would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, the tattler, the one who caused disruption, the accuser of the brethren, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore linen ephod. So here we see him removing the influence of God in his life because he was mad because they actually acted like God and served him. I'm going to be also reading 1 Samuel 25, but before that I'm going to just read a psalm. You don't have to turn, if you want to turn to 1 Samuel 25, If you want to find someone to go along with your bitterness, you'll find someone. There'll always be somebody there that will come alongside you and tell you how hard you have it, how bad it is. Don't let them give you bad counsel. Read the Bible. Psalm 52 in the heading in the New King James, to the chief musician in contemplation of David, when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. And this is David writing. Why do you boast in evil, almighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah, you love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. Think about that. Is that worth it? The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But contrary to that, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. I am not going to go out and try to get vengeance for myself. I am just going to praise you and bless you and wait on you in your house. And again, if you just look at David as that type of Jesus in 1 Samuel 25, we know that Samuel ends up dying. And it says in verse 2, Now there was a man in Maon, whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal. I just think of a Seinfeld. Every time uh, his neighbor that he didn't like, hello, Newman, hello, Nabal. The name of the man was Nabal and his name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. So here's a godly woman married to, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. So what does Abigail do with this terrible husband that she has? And again, think of David as a type of Christ for us. When David heard 
in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent 10 young men and David sent to the young woman, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. We should even get a cup of water for in his name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house and peace to all that you have. Verse seven, I have heard that you have shears, your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them. All the while they were in Carmel, ask the young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men, verse nine, came and spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited, then Nabal answered David's servant and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each from his own master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give to men who I do not know where they are from? Verse 12, So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword, so every man girded on his sword, not a guy you want upset with you. And David also girded, we don't want the Lord upset with us either. David also girded on his sword and about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men took Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we were accompanied by them when we were in the fields, it would be right for your husband, our master, to take care of this guy who did honorably. 16, they were, they were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. And of course, David had a shepherd's heart. He knew what it was like to be out in the wilderness. He had compassion on them. He did the right thing. 17, now therefore, know and consider what you will do for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. So what might Abigail be thinking right now? Well, he is kind of a, a jerk, <laughs> and David's going to be king. <laughs> but she's a godly woman. 18, then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, thinking of a Proverbs 31 woman, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of, in figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as he rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill. And there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that he belongs to him and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. 23, now when Abigail saw David, and again, might this be, if you're in a bad relationship, might this be our prayer life? When Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, Oh, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. The two of us are one. 
And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. You can tell God the truth. He already knows it. You're going to complain about your husband because you're upset with him. God already knows you're upset with him. Tell him the truth. (laughs) You don't have to mince it. Just be honest. If your wife is miserable and a drunk, say, Lord, she's a miserable drunk. I need help. There's no sense in lying to him. 25, please let not my Lord regound this scoundrel, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord. Let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. So she's just going on and praising, and um, we need to take things to prayer and accept it be for a time of prayer and fasting. So be one with your spouse. Be honest with God about it. Don't hate God because of another person. You can become so bitter in your heart, and hopefully this is none of us. Hopefully our our relationships with our spouses are good. Hopefully our relationships with the Lord is good so that we don't need a spouse. But when it gets to the point that we're going to burn, that we're going to love him enough, realize that our bodies have been bought with a price, and we're going to do what he says with our bodies because he, he owns us. He's our Lord. That's what Lord means. It's not a strange thing that I'm saying. Lord Jesus Christ, Ken Graves last Saturday at the Men's Day said it's only been in recently times where we've become comfortable enough. Oh yeah, you know, the man upstairs or J-E-S-U-S, he said he was at one worship conference. He's like, he walked out. The Lord Jesus Christ is his title and his name. Have reverence. He's a holy God. What does he say is the right thing to do? Beg, come before him. What, what do you do if somebody deserves judgment? You come and you plead for him, like Abigail. Lord, I know, I know you're coming back. I know you're all-powerful. I know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You just said that in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Lord, please have mercy on my husband. Please have mercy on my wife. Please let me make a difference in their lives. Please let me minister to them, forgive them, heal us. Just as Daniel prayed for the country, even though he was walking with God. It only benefits you if you're married that your spouse does well. The Bible says, if you love your wife, you love your own body. And literally, it is your body, according to God. Nobody hates his own body. Another Tom conversation that I had, (laughs) talking about loving God and loving others. He says, you don't have to learn to love yourself. I was telling him, we all do that. And he's like, well, I don't know, some people are miserable and they, you know, they, they commit suicide because they're so upset. And I'm like, yeah, they love themselves so much they hate the fact that they're not doing well. If you really hated yourself, you'd be glad that you were miserable. Think about that for a while. <laughs> we love ourselves. We want, our, we want things better. We focus on ourselves. Just if you're, if you're, it, it behooves you, it's about as big as a word as I can come up with, it behooves you to bless your spouse because it's good for you. You're in it together. God said so. 
we need to try to make it work as much as possible with you. Back in 1 Corinthians 7. Seven ten. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. And again, we understand that this is a picture. And this is one of the verses that I'd like to go to. This is not an unforgivable sin. We know every sin is forgivable except for unbelief. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, not believing what the Holy Spirit says about God hates divorce. Why? Well, first of all, divorce isn't about, well, I'm not happy anymore. It's not he hates it because I, you know, I can't make my wife like me better or whatever. It's because it's supposed to represent a picture of Christ in the church. I don't believe he'll ever leave you. It's, you know, I, you know, I believe he'll never leave you because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, even until the ends of the earth. If that's the picture that it's supposed to represent, if you get divorced, you're not making a good picture. So if you don't go into marriage thinking, I'm not going to get divorced. There are exceptions. We'll get into those. But if you go into it thinking there's an exception, you're already losing half the battle. Just, which is when Jesus taught his disciples that. They're like, well, if we can't like, get divorced, then maybe we shouldn't even get married. He's like, fine. <laughs> Don't get married. I agree. It's a hard thing what he's saying. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even, verse 11, if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, and sometimes, well, obviously we know that the, the husband's not going to heaven because the wife was saved, right? To each one is accountable to God for themselves. So what does this sanctified mean? We know sanctified means set apart. And it says otherwise in the middle of verse 14. So I think this kind of makes sense from the first part of the verse. Your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So what does this mean? Obviously, children don't get saved because their parents are saved. Nobody's born into the family from people. You get born into the family from of God. If you were born of a human being, then you're a human. When you're born of God, you're a Christian. Those are the, it's a physical thing that actually happens. I have two dads, a human dad and a heavenly dad. As the saying goes, if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. But children... It says, would be unclean. So if, if you are unsaved and you have children and your children die, do they go to heaven? Another controversial topic that we can talk about for a long time. Um, David Guzik would sit there and say, you can make a case that all saved kids, all saved parents' kids are sanctified and going to heaven. And I'm not saying that means unsaved people's kids don't, but it, you, I don't know where in the scriptures you can find that they actually do. Everyone says you can make a justification for it. I just don't think you can find a scripture for it. And I think it's on purpose. When's the Lord coming back? 
We don't know. Why? Because if we knew when he was coming back, we'd probably act differently. He doesn't want us to know because he doesn't want us to be comfortable in sin. I, I don't think he wants unsaved people to be comfortable in anything. So even if, they, even if unsaved people's kids do go to heaven, I don't, I don't think he would tell them that they're going to be fine. No, get right, make sure your kids are okay. There's a promise for parents, even if one of them is saved, that your influence will be upon your children that can keep them protected, at least until the point when they have to make a decision for themselves. You don't get that comfort if you're not saved, and I believe it's on purpose. Whether they go to heaven or not, it's not answered here. It just says that you, you don't have an answer. You do have one if one of the parents is saved. 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. One of the reasons you can have separation. If they're not willing to stay with you, then you're free to let them go. Also, we know for sexual immorality, it tells us in other places as well as here, a, a, a sound biblical reason for divorce is uh, for sexual immorality. You're not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. When you're with your spouse, there should be peace. My wife is my best friend, sometimes maybe my only friend. Not that other people aren't friendly to me, but if you're going to have somebody there, make it be your spouse. And if you're single, then make it be the Lord only. Spend time with him. He's got your back. Let him have it. 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, we were in a unique situation. I married an unbeliever, but I was also an unbeliever at the time. So we, neither of us were saved. And uh, I got saved first. And that doesn't mean I can then walk away. There's a good friend of mine that I work with. He used to come here for a little while. And uh, he's mainly, but I think she was tougher. And he was pretty tough. <laughs> and uh, he got saved, and she was not happy. They were both bikers. And uh, the, she had been married before, and her husband got saved, and then supposedly, and then said, I have to leave you because you're not saved, and divorced her unscriptural, we just read it, and it leaves an impact. And now all of a sudden he gets saved and she's thinking, great. And so it was a fight. He'd be reading in his bedroom in the morning. He'd have to go to the other bedroom because she would make comments. And then after he closes his Bible and walks out of the room, she's in the other bedroom yelling, don't believe it. I mean, you talk about spiritual warfare. Again, don't marry an unbeliever. You're supposed to be on the same page, walking the same way. It's difficult. In, in life is difficult enough, even when your best friend who has your back, you're married to, the battle's impossible, but God, and you need all the help that you can get. Uh, become one, same mission, same plan, true fellowship. This bodily part of it is part of it, and uh, he commands it, so let him do what he's gonna do. I know we mentioned it earlier, what makes a marriage good or bad, hopefully, you can be thinking about that if you're married, or if you're not married, if I'm gonna get married. Is my marriage going to represent Christ and the church? If not, well then wait until you can. If you're a woman, your husband's supposed to minister to you. Is he more mature than you? He should be feeding you and taking care of you. Is your wife gonna be going the same path or be dragging you down? The Bible just 
um, Solomon wrote how many proverbs on warning men, young men, about women. And it's not because necessarily women are that bad. It's because men put them in such high esteem because of a desire that they have. They're not willing to give unto the Lord, and their body's not their own. So, Father, we just thank you that all of this points to a relationship with you. Lord, your spirit is in us. We have become one with you in spirit, and we're to represent that bodily, Lord. We need help. You're the one that told us that. Without you, we can do nothing. Uh, But with you, we can do all things. So I just pray for those here that aren't married, that you would uh, give them a singleness of mind. If you've given them this gift of celibacy, that they would uh, take it to heart. They would cherish it, protect it. And uh, if it comes to a point that they can't take it, that they would seek you and the proper thing to do with that desire and uh, that you would show them the person that they're to be with. Lord, if anyone here's marriage is having difficulty, Lord, help us to not listen to bad counsel. Help us to not find people that are going to listen to our evil mouth and heart, but we would find people that would build us up and encourage us to do the right thing and that that would ultimately give you a chance to restore, to heal, and to fix. And, uh, For those of us that are doing well, Lord, we just pray that we do even better, that you would let the world see that we are your disciples by the love that you have with us, that people would want to have a relationship with you, even just looking at us. Lord, you're the one that set us on a hill, Lord, a candlestick on a hill to be seen. So let let our light so shine that people might see you. In Jesus' name, amen.